If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue in our journey of the Gospel of John. Please turn with me to John 14. Last time I spoke, we looked at John 14, verses 1 through 6, which was part 1. Believing in Christ's return brings us comfort, which was also point 1. This afternoon, this is part 2, we will finish the remaining two points. Continuing the study of our text, we read about Jesus' concern for his disciples. Because they were troubled. They were upset at Jesus' words to them that Judas is going to betray him. Peter is going to deny him. And he was leaving them for a while. And they couldn't go where he was going. Plus, they were way far ahead on the theology concerning the Messiah. They expected the conquering, glorious king. But Jesus had to suffer and die first and then enter his glory. They didn't understand the suffering and dying part. But Jesus is the compassionate high priest and understood their weakness. He understood their frail, sinful hearts. And he wanted to comfort their troubled hearts. 2,000 years later, his disciples, his church, is still at times we have troubled hearts, don't we? And 2,000 years later, we could still hear the sweet Savior say, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Why did Jesus speak so much on trusting him? Why do we need to hear it so frequently? I don't know about you, but I need to hear it frequently. Because like the first century disciples, we don't know Jesus or the Father well enough. We constantly need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We need to believe in God and continue to believe in God. And if you say, well, John, I know that already. I fully trust in Jesus. Well, this text is especially for you tonight. John 14, verses 1 through 14. Let's read it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord... Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, or has seen the Father, has seen me. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on the account of the works themselves. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, I ask you today to open up our hearts to receive your word with exceeding joy. Let it change us that we may obey you and abide in you and walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. And this will bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. An old soldier's prayer. Build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak. And brave enough to face himself when he is afraid. One who will be proud and unbending and honest to feet. And humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose wishes will not take the place of deeds. A son who will know thee. And that to know himself is the foundation stone of knowledge. Build me a son whose heart will be clear. Whose goal will be high. A son who will master himself before he seeks to master other men. One who will reach into the future, yet never forget the past. And after all these things are his, add, I pray, enough of a sense of humor, so that he may always be serious, yet never take himself too seriously. Give him humility, so that he may always remember the simplicity of true greatness, the open mind of true wisdom, and the meekness of true strength. Then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. That was a prayer by General Douglas A. MacArthur. General MacArthur wanted a son who would reflect his own character. And if he received that kind of son, he believed his life would not have been a useless, pointless, ineffective life. By the way, General MacArthur was also the fifth cousin of Dr. John MacArthur. For those of you who don't know, a little trivia... You know, Jesus Christ is the kind of son that perfectly reflects a loving, compassionate, redeeming father who is worthy of all of our trust. When we trust Jesus, we ultimately trust God. And the proposition, which is the same as the first part, is the same. Only trusting Christ brings comfort to our troubled hearts. In part one, we saw that it will truly comfort a believer's heart knowing that Jesus is preparing a place for us and will come again to take us to be with him forever. The only way that our hearts will not be comforted and will actually bring fear into our hearts is when we are not trusting Christ or we continue living in sin. The apostles was so despondent because of their misunderstanding. And Jesus, in essence, says, listen, guys, there's an antidote for your troubled, despondent hearts. And it's simple. Believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, stop worrying and trust God. I'm preparing an eternal dwelling for you in my Father's house, in heaven. And don't worry, because I'm coming back to get you. And we will be together forever. But there's only one way to God and this eternal dwelling, and that's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father 
except through me. What I said the last time, I will say again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an exclusive gospel. In essence, he told them that all other religions are false. He told them a narrow-minded way of thinking. That there is no other way to God in heaven. And if you want comfort for your hearts, come only to Jesus. Trust only in Jesus. And believe that he will come back for you. And if that doesn't bring comfort to our hearts, all the drugs and alcohols won't do it either. This was our first point. Believing in Christ's return brings us comfort. And the last two points are this. Believing Christ and knowing the Father brings us comfort. And the third point, believing Christ, Christ promises, brings us comfort. Let's look at point two. Believing Christ and knowing the Father brings us comfort. And verse seven again. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Excuse me one second. One of the main themes in John's gospel is Jesus Christ's deity. In other words, John is constantly reiterating that Jesus is God. Now, you may think that, well, believing Jesus is God is not that important. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought it was very important. As a matter of fact, how we react to Jesus' claim to being God determines our eternal destiny. John understood that when he wrote the Gospel of John. Listen to what Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews who rejected his claims in John 8, chapter 8, verse 24. He told them, he said, I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now in the original Greek, it says, unless you believe that I am. It doesn't say I am he. Ego aimi, the Greek word. Not I am he, I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What Jesus was saying is, I am the Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, found in Exodus. When Moses said to God, whom shall I tell the Israelites sent me? And he said to them, you tell them I am sent you. So Jesus was equating himself with the I am found in Exodus. So it's important that we understand the person of Jesus Christ. It is as one commentator said, the watershed that divides the true from the false views of Christ. And the statement now in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, was nothing less than a claim to be God. Jesus claimed equality with the father. To know Jesus is to know the father. When it comes to essence, being, existence, attributes, eternality of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no difference. They are all God. They are equal in being. What the scholars call ontological equality. In other words, they are equal. But then they're subordinate in role. What the scholars call economic subordination. And a quick example to clarify economic subordination is the Father planned redemption. He didn't die for us. The Son did. The Son obeyed the Father and accomplished redemption. And then after the Son ascended back into heaven, it was the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son to apply that redemption to us. You see, they're 
distinguished in their roles, and yet they are equally God. One God existing in three persons. And that's why Jesus could say, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And in John 5.23 we see Jesus telling his disciples and and the, um, the Pharisees, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If we honor the Son, we honor the Father. And we know him and we know the Father as well. It proves we truly know God. But did the disciples know the Father at this point? Because if they fully grasped who Jesus was, they would have known who the Father was as well. The first half of 7, verse 7, seems like they didn't. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But then you come to the second half of verse 7, which seems like at least at that point they did know the Father. Because he says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now there are variant readings of this verse in the Greek, which makes it difficult to know exactly what he meant. Now they were truly Christ's disciples. The 11, Judas had left already, the 11 that were with Jesus were truly saved and truly his disciples. But I think in my opinion, they did not have a full and accurate knowledge of Jesus, his character, his person, who he was. Because if they did, they would have known the Father also. Albert Barnes, the 19th century theologian, said, They still retain to a large extent the Jewish notions respecting a temporal Messiah. And they did not fully understand that he was to die and to be raised from the dead. So they did not, as his true disciples, know Christ accurately at that point. However, when Jesus died and rose again and they were filled with the Spirit, they would then understand Christ's deity and his relationship to the Father. So when he said, from now on you do know him and you have seen him, it is possible Jesus meant that their understanding of him and his father would come in the future, but spoke of it as a present reality. They were on their way to not just a knowledge of God, the Son, but an experiential, intimate, relational knowledge of him, which reveals the Father. When it comes... When someone comes to faith in Christ, they're not going to understand accurately all the characteristics of the person and work of Jesus Christ. They need to learn about him. They need to grow and to mature into a mature understanding of him. And as they do, they will have a clearer picture of what the Father is like. And we need to be patient with new believers. And we need to be patient with, with Christians that have been Christians a long time, but with many years under bad teaching. We need to be patient. Another benefit of Jesus' departure for his disciples will be greater intimacy of relationship between them and Jesus. And one of the beautiful realities of the Christian walk is our knowledge of God grows. It doesn't stay the same. Our relationship with him, with, with, with Christ goes deeper and deeper. It does not stagnate. And the more we believe and trust Christ, the more we know the Father and the more our hearts are comforted. And that's why we sing the song, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. Jesus saves and keeps me, and he's the one I'm waiting for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Don't you remember that song? Every day with Jesus 
I promise. Okay. I'm sorry. Marty, you want to come up here and, uh, you know. When a man meets a woman for the first time, usually it's because of some physical attraction. They don't know anything at all about each other. And then they begin to date and learn a bit, little bit about each other. And as time goes on, they begin to fall in love. They get married. And that's where the real knowledge of each other grows. Their intimate relationship grows and matures. And their understanding of each other deepens as the more they spend time with each other. And I think the disciples at this point were physically attracted to the signs and the miracles that Jesus did. And also the misunderstanding notion that Jesus was now their conquering Messiah. He was the one who was going to save us. He's the one who's going to free us from Roman oppression. And it wasn't until Jesus died, rose back to life, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that the more accurate knowledge of Him and the Father, the disciples would now possess. They would know the Father because they knew the Son. And this relationship would grow just as a married couple's relationship grows. The more they knew Jesus, the more they knew the Father. The more you and I know Jesus, the more you and I know what the Father is like. The Apostle Paul and Peter were not content with their deep, intimate knowledge of Christ. They wanted to go deeper. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 3.10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his suffering, becoming like him in death. Now, he knew Christ already. He had a deep, intimate knowledge of him. He had a deep relationship with him, but he wasn't satisfied. He wanted to go deeper with Christ. And Peter also wanted a deeper relationship with Christ. As he tells his reader in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You and I should never be satisfied with our present relationship with Christ. We should desire a deeper and more intimate relationship with Him. The more we do, the more we know Abba Father. Abba Father. Abba is an intimate Aramaic term that means Daddy. We want to get to know the Father, but we need to know Jesus. Back to our text, we read that Philip is not satisfied what Jesus just said. So continuing in his ignorance, he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It's as if Philip said, look Jesus, we saw all these great miracles you did. But show one more, the big one. Remove the veil and show us the Father, and that's enough for us. You see, what Philip wanted was a theophany. A theophany in the Old Testament was a visible manifestation of God, like when he appeared to Abraham or Jacob or Moses in the Old Testament. Philip wanted this visible manifestation, and that would be enough for him and the rest of the disciples. But his request was rather foolish, because no one could see God fully and live, as the Lord told Moses in Exodus. He didn't understand the point of Jesus' coming, namely to reveal the Father. Now, we don't know the tone Jesus used to answer Philip, but I would suspect it's one of exasperation and sadness as he rebukes Philip and the rest of the disciples for their wavering faith. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus spent approximately three to three and a half years with his disciples. They witnessed him doing miracles. They heard him speak authoritative words of life, which must have burned in their hearts. They should have understood at this point who Jesus is. They should have understood who he was. And they should have understood that he reveals the Father. But like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was talking with them after he rose from the dead, they were foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Does this not speak of us as well when we fail to understand who Jesus is? Jesus' words in verses 9 and 10, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, is once again a claim to divinity. Why could Jesus say, Who has, whoever has seen me has seen the Father? Because he's God. And Paul calls him the image of the invisible God. He also says, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And yet, as Dr. Carson says, despite the disciples' loyalty to Jesus, they attest their profound spiritual blindness. They did not yet understand the person of Christ. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father. But if we don't know and understand who Jesus is, it is impossible to know and understand our Heavenly Father. This is an example of a pastor who preached a message about God, what God is like. And he said this, well, the person who was telling the story said, there was a pastor who talked about God who was like flowers, sunsets, the cry of newborn babies, the beauty of a clear blue sky. And he goes on to say, he said, yes, they are part of God's natural revelation and reflect them. But he never got to the bottom line. God is like Jesus Christ. Back to our text, Jesus could say, I am the Father, and the Father is in me, because, number one, Jesus and the Father are one, as he said in John 10.30. But this does not wipe out all the distinctions between them, as I said before. For it is the Father who gave Jesus the words and the works he performed. John constantly talks about Jesus' words and works that are from the Father. John 5.19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And then we have in John 12.49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So when we read these scriptures, we can't help but to see the oneness of the Father and Son, and yet a profound distinction between them. And even though the disciples were with Jesus and heard his profound authoritative words that cut right through their hearts, they were still slow to believe. Jesus' words are powerful because they came from God the Father. Even the unbelieving crowds in Matthew 7 testified that Jesus' words were authoritative and not like their scribes. 
And John 7, when the temple gods, who are asked by the Pharisees and the chief priests, why they didn't arrest Jesus, they said, never has a man spoken this way the man, this man speaks. But Jesus tells them in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. In other words, if you have trouble believing my words, then at least believe the works I do. You see, his works confirm his words. Jesus wanted them to believe what he said, and that would change their lives forever. But if not because he said, because he said it, then at least because his miracles prove it. And when we know Jesus, we know the Father as well. And that will bring peace to our troubled hearts. And I would think that all of you would agree with me that at lifetimes, at times, does not make sense. Life struggles, whether mentally, physically, spiritually, economically, it takes a toll on us. We're scared, we're confused, we're angry, we're depressed, we're in pain. Does Does this describe you or just me? This describes all of us to some degree or another. But nonetheless, we feel the pain and the sting of life. And we cry out from our troubled hearts, Father, in Christ's name, help me. God wants to comfort our hearts. But we don't understand how, how can a loving Father allow us to suffer this way. Maybe it's because we don't know the Father as well as we think we do. We're born again. We know our sins are forgiven. But we have a shallow understanding of God our Father. And it's because we have a shallow understanding of Jesus. Do we want our troubled hearts comforted? Get to know your heavenly father. How do you get to know your heavenly father? Get to know Jesus. Learn of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and what? Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Believe his word. Study his word. We have a Savior that wants to settle our troubled hearts. And we have a Heavenly Father who sent Christ to do that very thing for us. If you see Jesus... You see your heavenly father. If you're not a Christian. And have trouble believing God's word. Then believe in his work. No I'm not speaking about. Opening blind eyes. Or lifting people out of the wheelchairs. No I'm speaking about God. Raising the dead. A person who was dead in their sin. And God through Jesus spoke the words of eternal life to them. And raised them back to spiritual life. Believe the lives that have been changed in this very room. You're looking at one right now. Christianity is not blind faith. There's much evidence. And there's a bunch of evidences in this room tonight. Come to know the Father through Jesus. And you'll have the comfort for your troubled hearts. So point one, which we looked at the last time, was believing in Christ's return brings us comfort. Point two, believing in Christ and knowing the Father brings us comfort. The third and final point of our text, believing Christ's promises brings us comfort. Verses 12 to 14. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, these verses have been butchered by many Christians and so-called Christian groups. And at the same time, as Christians, it's okay to ponder what Jesus meant when he said, we will do greater works. And anything we ask in his name, he will do it. Well, first let me say a word of caution, that no theology, no doctrine, should ever be built on a single verse, ever. We take all of what the Bible says on any subject. Let's say it's prayer like this one. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is one block of information. And we must read the other blocks of information on prayer. This is not hard. This is not just for the pastor, the elder, the Bible teacher. Although you can ask us and we'll be glad to help you. But this is the responsibility of all Christians. An easy way to study a topic like prayer is look up prayer in a concordance and read what the other writers of scripture taught on prayer. Like when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6. Then you will have a better understanding of how to pray and not to yank a verse out of context. Yes, Bible study takes a little work. It's okay. But it's for your spiritual growth and God's glory. Anyway, back in our text, believing Christ's promises brings us comfort. And there are two promises in this verse. The first one, we will do greater works. Now, can we actually do the works Jesus did and even greater works than he did? I mean, he opened blind eyes, unstopped deaf ears, fed thousands from a few pieces of bread and fish, healed paralytics, calmed the raging seas, cursed fig trees and they withered, turned water into wine, and raised dead people back to life. Are we going to do that and even greater? Although some of the apostles in the first century church did. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Nonetheless, when Jesus went back to the Father, remarkable works flowed through every believer. What is greater, I think, is this. Jesus had limitations in where he preached. In his humanity, he was confined to time and space. He never preached or performed miracles outside of Palestine. Once the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and filled the believers, the gospel went through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and many parts of the world, not just Israel. And we see that in the book of Acts, the missionary success of the early church. And now because every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, the gospel is spread around the world, not just in Israel. So greater here is not so much in power, but in what Jesus did. Not in what Jesus did, I'm sorry, but in extent, geographically. The disciples and every believer would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to extend the work Jesus started. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Greater works means more conversions. Number two, I think it also means this. The greater works will be done in regular people where the power of God resides. 
the same power of God's Holy Spirit that was in Christ would be dwelling in all who love him, every believer. Dr. Kent Yu says, there is a sense in which they are greater than his works because of the humble weakness of his instruments. Believers are regular people. They are humble, weak instruments in the hands of God's Spirit. Jesus does his work through his weak, fledgling church. Every time we preach the gospel and someone comes to faith in Christ, guess what? The dead are raised back to life. Peter preached his first message in Acts. Peter, the one who denied Christ, preached his first message in Acts. And after the Spirit fell at Pentecost, 3,000 heard the voice of Christ and they came back to spiritual life. What makes that greater? Peter was a regular guy, a weak, humble man, where this amazing power flowed through him, and 3,000 came to faith in Jesus, and the church was launched. See, Jesus was God incarnate. So we could say, well, you know, expect God to do miracles and raise the dead and save people. Peter was a mere man. And every believer since Pentecost has this amazing Holy Spirit power. And I think that's why Jesus said greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Jesus told his disciples in the 16th chapter of John that he was going away for their good so the Holy Spirit could come to them. It was then and only then that he would send his Holy Spirit to indwell and empower believers where they can now do the greater works. The next time I speak, we will begin to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I read this commentary by Dr. Kenneth Gangel and thought it was a good applicable point for verse 12. And I'm going to paraphrase it. We find a leadership principle here. As parents, we should be able to say to our children. As pastors, we should be able to say to our leaders. And as leaders, we should be able to say to our followers, you have the potential to do greater things than I have done. If we empower and develop followers whose ministry exceeds the impact of our own, is to follow the model of Jesus. We should never, ever, any of us, from the pastor, the pastor all the way down, we should never be intimidated if the ones we mentor do greater things than we do. So the first promise is we will do greater works. Again, Greater in extension, but also greater in the fact that he was using weak vessels to display his power. Second promise, we will pray in Jesus' name and God will answer. And I don't have to tell you how many have had a field day with this particular verse. When Jesus was with his his disciples, he met their every need. Now he's leaving them. And they must have wondered how their needs are going to be met. I mean, we left everything to follow you, Jesus. Now you're leaving us. Who's going to meet our needs now? They must have been thinking that. But Jesus now promises them that even after he leaves them, he would continue to meet their needs from heaven. Verses 13 to 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There are those in the church that think they could ask for anything as long as they tack on in Jesus' name. This is a very popular in what we call the name it and claim it movement, also known as the word of faith movement. 
If you pray in Jesus' name, you can be free of cancer. You can drive a new car. You can be healed of all your diseases. You can be rich. You can have a big house, etc., etc. There's a Greek word for this. You know what that word is? Baloney. (laughs) Once again, we need to be careful how we interpret this verse. These verses are not a blank check with a promise. Never have. They're not and they never will be. We must look at this in context of all the Bible teaches about prayer. To pray in Jesus' name is is not some magic formula that somehow God is now obligated to answer our every prayer motivated by selfishness and greed. It means to ask, to make requests consistent with God's will and purpose of His kingdom. Remember when He taught the disciples how to pray in Matthew 6.10? He said, Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then in 1 John 5.14, and this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything... According to his will, he hears us. It also means that we pray in his name because we are unworthy to get anything from God ourselves. Because we are unworthy. And so we come based on Christ's merits. God hears and answers our prayers, make no mistake about this, because of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus is the head and Lord of his church. And he alone works in and through his church and empowers us to do the greater works which are available to us through believing prayer in his name. The greater works that the gospel can be preached around the world, the greater works that will use weak vessels like ourselves are available to us through prayer. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The ultimate purpose Of why we're going to do greater works. The ultimate purpose of why we can ask anything in Jesus name. And he'll answer us. Is to glorify the father. To glorify the father. Let's conclude. We live in a world. That's full of disappointments. I think you would all agree. With me there's pain. Sorrow. Broken relationships. Fear. Anxieties. Christ's words are just as relevant today as they were in the upper room 2,000 years ago. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You see, God wants sonship and every believer are focused to be on his return, his promises, and the fact that we have an Abba Father who genuinely cares for us and has made himself known to us through his son, Jesus. If our focus is on these things, this is a guarantee. If our focus are on these things, our hearts cannot be troubled but comforted. And peace will rule our souls. As the old hymn says, peace, peace, wonderful peace. Coming down from the Father above, sweep over my spirit forever, I pray. In fathomless billows of love. Let's get ready for communion. And as I end this message, and we get ready for the Lord's Supper, let's reflect on the biblical fact that Christ showed us what the Father is like by His death and resurrection. And that He's preparing a place for us. And He's coming back to take us, to be with Him forever. Which should bring comfort to our troubled hearts.